When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 288, and we are recording on June 29th. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we're coming to you from Book Riot and from my recording closet, which is a sweat box because we are in the middle of a heat emergency here in Pennsylvania, and you can't have fans on when you're recording a podcast. Did you know? That's the truth. Oh, that sounds like the worst. You're in a sauna. Accidental <laughs> <Basically>. sauna. <laughs> Accidental sauna. I'm going to like go stick my head in the freezer when we're done recording. Oh, but man. I hope by the time this comes out, everybody is getting cooler weather because I know it's real bad in other places as well. Yeah. And it's only like places where air conditioning is not common. Like the Pacific Northwest is having this huge heat wave right now. Nobody there has AC because yeah. they don't need it. Right. Like normally. So yeah, the worst. Godspeed to your freezers. <laughs> anyway, we're sending cooling thoughts to everyone. Yes, yeah. yes. All right, let's see. Let's get into this. We are, as we said, a show for personalized reading recommendations, which means you can send your question for what you should read next. Maybe there's a kind of book that you're having trouble finding more of. Maybe you need a recommendation for a friend or a family member or a book club or whatever. Uh, you can send those questions in either via email, getbooked at bookriot.com, or there's a form that's at the bottom of the show notes on the site for every episode. You can drop your question in there. If you have a time-sensitive question you're hoping to hear back by a specific date, maybe it's like a birthday or something, please put time-sensitive, all caps, at the top of the form or in the subject line of the email and the date you're hoping to hear back by. If we don't think we're going to get to it on the air by then and we want to answer it anyway, we might shoot you an email so you can keep an eye out for those. And we are coming up on episode 300, Mm. which feels wild. Mm. (laughs) And we thought we'd do something special. So we're going to do like a mix of AMA and recommendations that we just like want to tell you about potentially. So you can send your ask us anything questions. Same places. Get booked at bookriot.com or drop them in the form. Just write like AMA episode 300, something so that we know it's not a question for the regular show. That, that is our request. Please just send us some questions. All right. So we have some feedback. This is from Elizabeth, who says, for Heather, who is looking for people figuring out poly relationships, and for Ray, looking for trans slash non-binary rep, I just finished Detransition Baby by Tori Peters, and it is phenomenal and should check both those boxes. I wouldn't say it's a happy ending, but it's not rip your heart out and stomp mm-hmm. on it sad. I found the ending hopeful, though complicated, and I really just wanted to live with the characters for longer. I will say I have been hearing amazing things about that book. 
And I do believe it's either on the shortlist for some awards or possibly has already won some. It was shortlisted for the Women's Prize, and I have had it on hold at the library since then. So like yeah. three or four months. Um, yeah, so it's yeah. doing well if, you know, long hold times at the library are any indication. Right. Usually they mean at least something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for our housekeeping. So Amanda is going to read our first question and then we will get with the recommending. Okay, our first question is from Emily, who says, This is an oddly specific request. Those are our favorite. It's fine. I recently read Girl at War and Ask Again Yes. I really enjoyed the concept of two childhood friends, a boy and a girl, having to be separated for some specific, dare I say, tragic reason, and then reunited later in life. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris, is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. where they have to address the reason for their separation and decide what they mean to each other now that so much time has passed. Do you know of any other novel that involves a plotline like this? We do, but first, our sponsor. That was a good transition. Are you proud of me? That was nice. That was really good. <laughs> I I am proud of you, Amanda. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to keep going. Um, so I picked The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett for this, which comes with trigger warnings for racism and lynching specifically. This takes place in the South in Louisiana, Um, mid-century, like the 50s-ish. And it's about the, well, that's when it opens. It spans from then on to present day. It's about the Vignes twins. These are two girls who grow up in a really, really small town in Louisiana um, where only light-skinned Black people live. And they don't welcome dark-skinned Black people. They also don't want any white people around. So it's just people who can pass or like close to that. Uh, They marry each other, have more light-skinned children, and like that's what the community is doing. 
the girls witness their father being lynched when they are very young and are kind of growing up with that trauma. Also, it's a small town. Also, it's Louisiana. All of these things combined mean that when they turn 16, they bounce and run away to New Orleans, where one of the girls marries a really, really dark-skinned black man who turns out to be abusive. Oh, I should add another trigger warning for that. Domestic violence. And then the other twin decides to start passing as a white woman working as a secretary in a mall or something, working as a secretary, and then ends up marrying her boss and goes off, abandons her sister, and goes off into the world to pass as white forever. Both women have children, um, and then you follow the kids as they're dealing with the consequences of these actions. Now, the sister who marries the dark-skinned black man, she is the one who has a relationship with a boy who she gets separated from. So when she's growing up in the small town, she befriends a young boy who lives out on the outskirts of the town. He doesn't live in the town. And he like comes into town to do odd jobs and stuff like that. And they become friends. Eventually, they get really close. You know, they're young. They're like under 16. So there's a little, you know, like crush, that kind of a thing until her mom catches them together. It is like, absolutely not. You cannot, without saying it in too many words, you can't be with a boy that dark. And so she forbids them from seeing each other again. Um, and then, you know, as she, when she gets older and she leaves her abusive husband, she has her own da- daughter who is dark skinned and she moves home to her small town, ignoring the fact that her daughter is going to be ostracized or made fun of. And she reconnects with this boy from her past who is now a man and is like very fascinating life and his own jobs. And they have to they do that dance, you know, like they figure out, is this thing that we had when we were kids still even a thing? Like, We've both got a lot of trauma. How do we overcome that? Are we going to be together or not? You know, and then you follow all of these characters over a period of like 40 or 50 years. And so you can watch that relationship evolve over time. So that's The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Yeah, I picked a rom-com, but in the way of all of Sonali Dave's rom-coms, it has some (laughs) dark stuff in it. Uh, I won't talk about that in my summary. I'll just give trigger warnings at the end. But it's Recipe for Persuasion, which is, as you might guess from the author, the title rather, a Austin-inspired rom-com. And the main characters, Ashna Rajay and Rico Silva, do grow up knowing each other and like have that, you know, sort of puppy love relationship. And then it gets ruined because other people are terrible and they don't see each other for a long time and have a lot of baggage about why they do not see each other for so many years. And then... Rico grows up to become this like soccer star. Like he's, well, football, technically. European football. He's like hugely, you know, famous, very accomplished. And he is reaching a point in his career where like his knees are busted. Like he's trying to think about like what's going to happen to him next after he can't play anymore. It's actually a little bit Ted Lasso now that I'm describing it. Like this book is not a comp for Ted Lasso, but Rico (laughs) is having some Ted Lasso-esque situations because soccer. So that. And then Ashna is a chef, and she has been, like, pouring her entire life into keeping her deceased father's restaurant going for, like, baggage reasons. And she, it's it's really struggling. She's not making any money. The restaurant is failing. She does not know what to do. And somebody is like, hey, will you fill this spot on this reality TV show, cooking show? You're going to have to cook with a celebrity. It'll be fine. And she's desperate for the money. So she says, yes. Who is the celebrity she's paired up with? I bet you can guess. It's Rico. <laughs> and he knows that it's going to be her, but she doesn't know that it's going to be him. So there's this like very dramatic meeting. Uh, and they have a lot of 
stuff to work through, like huge amounts of stuff to work through. There's also like family stuff and friends stuff and lots of community, like supporting cast of characters, which I always love in a romance. And like it is a rom-com, so you can guess what's going to happen with them. But they do a lot of flashbacks. So you get to see them in their earlier times as well as as grownups. And they're just such like a fun pairing. I really, I really loved this book. This is the part where I give you all the content warnings because, yeah, Dave doesn't write, like, her books are fun, but they also deal with some really heavy stuff. So the content warnings include graphic death by suicide, alcoholism, rape, intimate partner violence, and emotional child abuse. It's heavy, like I said. But it's really good. So, again, that's Recipe for Persuasion by Sonali Dave. All right. Our next question is from Kat, who says, I'm super fascinated with Polynesia, and I would love to read more that's set on one of the islands in the Pacific. I loved Euphoria and the People in the Trees, which is how I found out that I want more. Can you recommend any books set in historic or contemporary Polynesia that aren't told exclusively from a white colonial perspective? Made up islands where people are fine, too. I prefer fiction. Narrative nonfiction is okay. No memoirs, please. Amanda, what did you pick? Okay, I picked Sharks in the Time of Saviors by Kawhi Strong Washburn, which I will also say is recommended by Obama. It was on his summer reading list, which means that it is a good book. Not because I'm recommending it, because Obama recommended it. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you might be more of an ex- expert on books than Oh, 100%. Obama. I'm yes. just going to throw am, that yes. out there. <laughs> we are definitely better at this than Obama, but it just makes me feel better. You know what I mean? Like, anytime my Venn diagram of interest overlaps with Barack Obama's, Fair. I feel like I'm living my correct life. So, Fair. Sharks in the Time of Saviors is a contemporary Hawaiian novel. And yes, I did Google whether or not Hawaii was part of Polynesia because I had several moments of like, wait, it is, right? Like, I second guess myself a lot, but it is. So this opens in 1995 in Hawaii. And this family of uh, indigenous Hawaiians are on a like cruise, you know, taking a vacation on a cruise ship. And their child, Noah, who is seven, falls off the boat uh, into like the waiting waters where shark infested waters like there are sharks around the boat of course everybody freaks out the seven-year-old is probably about to die in front of his family instead a shark like very gingerly takes the boy in its mouth and then delivers it to the boat like puts it back on the boat and then swims off so the family is convinced that this is like a visitation from the gods and that this child has been blessed and then as he gets a bit older he starts to exhibit some very strange powers like abilities to perhaps heal people and it turns into this kind of whisper network of neighbors and friends and family and people from around the island bringing you know their ailments to him to get healed it brings an income for the family you know before this they struggled with poverty but of course, there are people who are like, obviously, this seven-year-old boy does not have healing powers. Like, what is wrong with you people? But it looks like maybe he does. You know, like, it's just a giant question mark. It looks like maybe he does. Ugh. He's also got an older brother who is uh, very into basketball and a sister who's kind of an academic. And then you follow these three kids as they grow up and eventually leave the mainland. One of the brothers, go- the brother goes to play basketball or leaves for the mainland. The brother goes to play basketball, I think, in California. The daughter goes to college. And Noah gets a little bit lost. You know, he's had all of this pressure on him as a child and all of this, like, mythology built up around him, which is a lot for a a kid that, like, not only are you a healer, but maybe you are going to save our people from, like, all of this colonization and all these terrible things that are happening to us. Um, And so he, like, flees. He leaves the islands. He goes to the mainland. He ends up in, like, Seattle working as a um, EMT, which is, like, his way of continuing to heal people without having to face the question of whether or not what he was told about himself is real. 
And then, you know, it's, it's a big family saga. So there's a lot of following each family member as they encounter different obstacles and also struggling with this question of like, okay, but what happened to this kid? Like, this shark delivered him to us. Also, those people did go home and get better. So like, what 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 is it? You know, like, is this a supernatural situation? Or is this something that we are telling ourselves because we need a way to emotionally cope with all of the racism and effects of colonization on the islands? So it's pretty heavy. And I don't well, I don't want to talk about the ending because it's obviously it's a spoiler, but it's pretty heavy. <laughs> it's pretty heavy, but it's really, really beautifully written. And the way that it's dealing with these questions is like, man, I will never look at Hawaii the same again. Like it is off my vacation destination list, not because people shouldn't go there, but like that's kind of, it's just hashtag complicated. So that's Sharks in the Time of Saviors by Kawhi Strong Washburn. All right. You wanted a not colonial perspective. <laughs> I'm giving you anti-colonial perspective. <laughs> To the nth degree, I picked Island of Shattered Dreams by Chantal T. Spitz, translated by Jean Anderson. And this is, at least it's the first that we know of, novel by a native Tahitian author. So Spitz is from Tahiti, grew up in Tahiti. And she was born in the 50s, and she, her family had, does have um, mixed origins. And she wrote this novel in French, and it follows three generations of Tahitians starting in the 1920s and then moving forward in time. So you get like World War II and you get nuclear testing, which happened in like in Polynesia, it, like all kinds of potential effects for people. And you get these families who are dealing not only with these huge global, you know, situations, but also the everyday situations of growing up in a colonized environment where, you know, your religion, your culture, your ethnic like heritage, everything has been invaded and affected by the colonial perspective and traditions and, you know, efforts to literally like erase your culture and yourselves. So these characters are dealing with all of these very intense issues. You're also getting she's like there's like some fabulous sort of myth stuff woven into it, uh, oral tradition kind of stories about creation and, you know, heroes from the Tahitian uh, mythology and folklore. So you're getting all of these different threads woven together. And it's I mean, it's obviously, as is only appropriate, a very intense book. Um, but if you really want like a native perspective and you want to look at some of the specific ways in which colonialism has shaped Tahiti, like, here you go. This is the book. So again, that's Island of Shattered Dreams by Chantal T. Spitz. All right. Our next question is from Joan, who says, I'm getting close to retirement and was hoping you could recommend some books about women transitioning into this time of life. As much as I'm looking forward to this phase, it is somewhat daunting. I'm interested in the transition process and finding meaning as one moves into another way of being in the world. Fiction or nonfiction is fine. A memoir would be great. Also, I'm not a huge fan of romance, but if you could suggest a couple that are character driven and involve a spicy, slightly overweight postmenopausal woman, that would be freaking awesome. <laughs> okay. Um, I took, we split this question. I took the romance part of it. And I am recommending another celebrity chef pairing with an amateur romance, <laughs> which I did not realize was like a trope. But of course it is because romance contains all tropes, all possible Indeed. tropes. And I love it so much. Okay, so this is A Taste of Heaven by Penny Watson. The heroine and the hero are approaching 50. I think they're 59 or 49 and 47. And 
the heroine, her name is Sophia, and she is very recently widowed. Her husband of 20 plus years has unexpectedly died, and she, like recently, and she doesn't really know what to do with herself. She was a stay-at-home mom before, and now she, they're, like, her kids are gone and grown, and so she's just alone in a house suddenly, which for someone who has fashioned, like, a kind of career, a version of a career around caring for your family to have, like, nobody left to care for is very confusing and, like, daunting and you know, traumatizing. So she doesn't really know what to do. And her kids are like worried about her and she's an excellent cook. And this is what she has taken to spending her time doing to kind of like fill the hours and distract herself. And so her daughters in like out of well-meaning, like trying to get her to do something, enter her into a like celebrity chef reality cooking show where the amateur gets paired with a celebrity chef and they have to cook together and compete against the other pairings. The chef that she gets paired with, Elliot, is a jerk. Like he is, he's Scottish. Um, He's been divorced three times, probably because he's a jerk. Uh, He's, like, super arrogant. He's very alpha-holy, you know. And he very much resents having to, like, be paired with this kind of, like, mommy bloggery cook thing. Like, he's just so obnoxious. But, you know, of course, it turns out that he is has this secret squishy center. Um, And Sophia is a perfect foil to him because she is polite and reasonable and an adult who speaks to other adults like adults do. And just, like, does not take his crap. Like, she's going to cook what she wants to cook. You know, she is almost 50 years old, which is too old to be dealing with some man's temper tantrums. So she just, like, does what she wants quietly and politely, but, like, does what she wants. And eventually he realizes, you know, like, oh, I'm such a, I'm a dingus. And then maybe sparks fly and also flower occasionally. Um, <laughs> sexy flower. I'm, to- I'm making, like, a tossing motion. Like... <laughs> Where, Meryl, Errol, what was that? What was that show? Bam! What was that guy's name? Who did the Meryl, song? yeah. Yes, thank you. Anyway, it's adorable. Both of them turn out to be quite lovable, even though Elliot, obviously, as you can tell, annoyed the living heck out of me for a while. So that's A Taste of Heaven by Penny Watson. <laughs> I think Sexy Flowers probably. <laughs> uh, that's, I love, let me tell you, this is one of my personal favorite contemporary romance tropes, is mm. the, the food competition. I have read several and enjoyed them immensely. So I will be picking that up. I did not. I Yeah, right. So not a romance. I will just say briefly that it is shockingly hard to find fiction about a retired woman. Like this is not a genre that has much visibility. And I, I, I was like, I'm not going to. I mean, there's Olive Kitteridge, right? Like everybody mm-hmm. knows about Olive Kitteridge. But like otherwise, it's not exactly bursting with options. But then so I, I really struggled to figure out what I wanted to recommend to you. But I just read this review of Wayward by Dana Spiota in The New York Times. Shout out to Parul Siegel, who like makes me want to read the bejesus out of this. And I think you might, too. It sounds perfect. So it's not exactly retirement. The main character of this novel is uh, Samantha Raymond. She is 52. She is like dealing with menopause. She's dealing with her teenage daughter who like doesn't want anything to do with her. She's struggling to like, you know, deal with her marriage. And then also it's the election of 2016. So Donald Trump just got elected. And like she's a white woman trying to figure out like what do I do now? Like, (laughs) how do I, what do I do? Like, what am I doing? And so she's really, you know, engaging in all of these questions that we have all been, you know, especially white women of a certain age have been asking themselves for some years now, hopefully asking themselves for Mm -hmm. some years now. Mm -hmm. And she decides to risk, she like 
in, in the classic projection technique, she finds this crumbling house outside of Syracuse and decides that she's going to rehab the house. Because, like, when you can't fix, you know, intangibles, what do you do? You find something concrete to try to fix. So she's rehabbing this house and, like, grappling with how to try to fix, is it, is it fixable, all of the other things that are going on in her life. So it's about, yes, like being an aging woman, dealing with your own position in society and your relationships. Like, how do you do all of these things? And Spiota is a really good writer. And I'm so like, I cannot wait for my library hold on this to come in. And I thought you might be similarly interested. Uh, so again, that's Wayward by Dana Spiota. Put it on hold right now. I know, right? I'm <laughs> excited to read it. Uh, okay, our next question is from Susan, who says, I stumbled on this delightful mystery series, Royal Spineness by Reese Bowen, a few weeks ago, and I've read them all now. I tried her other mystery series, but they lack the whimsy and fun of Georgiana and her aristocratic problems. Do you have another mystery series that is as smart and fun as this? If so, please share. I need more, and so do my friends. Who I have to whom I have introduced these books. Excellent grammar. I tried to change it, but, but <laughs> you you did the thing there, Susan. Okay, I'm just gonna keep talking. So I saw Aristocratic Problems and I raise you The Windsor Knot by <laughs> S.J. Bennett, which literally features the Queen of England solving crimes. Mm. Because what could be more aristocratic problems than that? This is the start of a new series. This first book just came out a few months ago, in the past few months, excuse me, and literally is like the actual Queen of England solving a suspicious death in like the palace while surrounded by her family. And I do want to pause for a moment here and say like royal family characters. Like, you can write about the real royal family because they're famous and I don't remember how all the rules work, but, like, so these are literal, like, Prince Philip and, like, the actual royal family. And, like, that narrative is extremely complicated, especially given recent events with Meghan Markle and, like, mm -hmm. all of these, like, you know, Megxit stuff. So... Megxit! If, if the royal family has become less fun for you for reasons that are real, perhaps you will not want to read this. But if the fantasy of the royal family like still works for you, then this is a book that you will probably want to read. So like, you know, there's corgis, like the queen and her private secretary are like subtly like trying to steer MI5 in the right direction because it turns out the queen has been solving mysteries for like ever, but nobody knows because she's a queen and nobody can know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's extremely lighthearted, like very cozy, fun, you know, snarky British mystery times is this book. Mm. So again, that's The Windsor Knot by S.J. Bennett. Okay, I picked the Veronica Speedwell series by Deanna Rayborn. The first book is A Curious Beginning. I also kind of latched on to the whimsy and fun and aristocratic problems part of this. So Veronica is an orphan who is raised by her two spinster aunts. And when the book opens... What they are both dead. Like one of them died before the book opens. The other one, she's like at the funeral of the other one. So now she's quite alone. Um, she doesn't have a ton of money. She also is a ooh, what lepidopterist? Is that the right butterfly? And butterflies, yeah, yes. Okay, so she's a lepidopterist. So her plan now that she's alone is to travel the world and do lepidoptery <laughs> and get published <laughs> under a dude pseudonym because hashtag Victorian era. Um, and also like have some affairs while she's abroad because she has a personal rule to never sleep with an Englishman on English soil because, you know, only trouble that way lays. And so that's what she's going to do. But uh, before she can leave to start her adventures, 
Somebody tries to kidnap her. And then an old man who calls himself the Baron shows up and rescues her and takes her away to London, which she goes because like, what is happening? And he explains to her that there is a plot against her, that her aunts were not who she thought they were, that her parents were not who she thought they were. And he is going to take her to his friend who is a natural scientist named Stoker for like safekeeping while he figures out how to keep her safe without giving away too many details about who she actually is. And before that can happen, he is murdered. And so she's stuck with this guy, Stoker, who is a very bad-tempered, jerky natural historian. And they are, yeah, stuck together because he gets implicated in the murder of the Baron and Veronica has nowhere to go and is now determined to figure out what is going on. Like, why do people keep trying to kill me? Who is this old man who, like, was apparently the only person on my side in the world left on the planet and now he's dead and like who am i and what is going on you know just like flail just umbrella flail in the air and she is amazing like georgiana from the royal spinus series is kind of a she's a little bit ditzy like she's a little flaky she's a little alexis you know uh, alexis rose (laughs) veronica is not that veronica is an academic she's a blue stocking she's a feminist she doesn't take guff from anyone and the fact that somebody is trying to kill her just like offends her sensibilities and her sense of like how dare you sir you know and so she is here to solve this mystery and she's gonna like drink some tea there's a slow burning romance with the jerk stoker who turns out to of course again again have a secret squishy center what is it with these dudes and there's just be squishy on the outside like a normal person <laughs> anyway but then there's no plot so that's fine so that is a curious beginning by deanna rayborn and it is time for our next sponsor Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, She wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. 
For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Okay, question five is from Michelle. I am looking for recommendations for fiction set in parts of history that had major societal change. The Enlightenment interests me particularly, but any social revolution would be great. Bonus points if the book has female perspectives. Okay, Jen, what you got? Well, I haven't <laughs> talked about it in a minute, so we're going with Queen <laughs> of the Night by Alexander T, which is one of the OG, like, most recommended books of Get Booked. So here we are, full circle, almost at episode 300, still recommending Queen <laughs> of the Night by Alexander Chi, which feels correct. This is all of the sweeping changes in French history. The main character, Liliet, is a soprano opera singer in Paris. She is, like, feted and admired and dripping with jewels and everybody, you know, loves her, et cetera, et cetera. She goes to this party and this like young up and coming composer is like, I'm writing an opera. I want you to originate the role. And this is like the one thing she hasn't done yet as a singer, which, as I learned, because I know nothing about opera before I read this book, uh, is like a big deal for a singer to originate a role. So she's like, ha, finally, this will be like the crown jewel in my crown of accomplishments. But then she starts to read it and she's like, um... This is based on my secret life, mm. and I don't understand how you know any of this. And also, the the guy who approached her does not appear to actually know that. So she's like, "Who, who is setting me up? Like, what is happening here?" And so you are with Liliet as she like ha- you know remembers how she got to this place, all of the upheavals, you know, like Napoleon and revolution, and like you know she was she was lived a very hard scrabble life for most of her life and like changed her name multiple times to like get out of complicated situations and so it's it's very sweeping like sweeping and epic are the two words that I feel like are so often applied to this book which is legit but you also get those like nitty-gritty mundane life during these big changes details which I think is like part of what you're after right is like what does it feel like to live through such a big thing how does it affect your like going to the market or like your day-to-day and those details are in here as well and Lilliet is just such an amazing character. I mean, this book is incredible. It's like a chonker. It's 560 some pages, but I read it in like two sittings because I just couldn't put it down. So again, that's The Queen of the Night by Alexander Chi. Okay, I picked Conjure Women by Afia Atakora, which has a trigger warning for slavery and everything that goes along with that. And this is a, um, I get these prefixes mixed up, postbellum novel <laughs> after the end of the Civil War. Because, you know, there are tons of novels about slavery and there are tons of novels about the civil war and then we kind of like to pretend that everything was fine after Mm. that except for like that Mm. one year when we had jim crow which we don't like to talk about but that was all those people are dead now right they're not they're not um and so and now everything is fine again like that's how americans like to think about race white americans i should say like to think about race and so this takes place immediately after the uh the end of the civil war and you get before like you get flashbacks to during the war and before it and the main character her name is rue and her mother her mother's name was may and may was a slave on this plantation she was the resident like local healer healing woman um she was also the forced sex slave you know essentially of the the man who owned who ran the plantation and rue was there is there is her daughter And so Rue, like, is very resistant to going into healing like her mother did. And she grows up 
kind of friend i'm using air quotes here like friends with varina who is the daughter of the people who own the plantation the white daughter and so they the two of them are often seen around the plantation and it gives rue this idea that like she is maybe exempt from the terrifying things that come along with slavery because she's given a like a lot of leeway as the friend of this little girl of course that's not what ends up happening and then the war comes and the slaves are freed, but they don't go anywhere. And Rue, you know, Rue's mother, she grows up. She's like an adult at this time. Rue's mother has died. She is now kind of de facto in charge, like very quietly in charge of this community. And so Verina, who is also now an adult, ha- kind of loses it a little bit uh, during the war. And so she's not well mentally. And Rue convinces her that the war is still happening and then writes letters to her two Verina's relatives in her name saying that like she's fine everything is fine you know whatever to keep them away and then the community of newly freed people just keep going like they pretend like they tell the outside world that their you know quote-unquote mistress or whatever is like still here and still in charge so that the white people will stay away and they just go on about their lives as freed people quietly trying to keep this secret and then a traveling preacher comes to town and kind of like ruins everything so it's such a like nobody's I, I've never read a book about this exact time period like what happens six months after the Emancipation Proclamation is read like what happens to these people in these like individual neighborhoods on these plantations where do they go like how, how do they survive they have no job it's not, and again it's not like everything was suddenly fine and white people were suddenly like super cool with freed black people like that's not what happened right it was still horrifying and remains horrifying 200 or whatever years later in a lot of ways. So I think that this is really important. And especially as a in the context of reading about a social revolution, because that's exactly what it was, but we don't really think about it that way. So that's Conjure Women by Afia Atakora. Definitely putting that on hold. <laughs> just trade and holds today. Just trade and hold. Just yeah, just all up in here, putting <laughs> things on hold. All right. Our next question is from Sam, who says, I'm looking for some Ireland slash Irish book recommendations. I just finished Normal People by Sally Rooney, the book and the show. So good. I also studied abroad there a few years ago and I'm feeling quite nostalgic. So now I'm craving more books either set in Ireland or anything that gives me Ireland vibes. Leaving the subject or genre open to you, I'm generally all over the place with fantasy, sci-fi, contemporary historical fiction, etc. Just nothing so history textbook heavy that I doze off. Well, Sam... I took you at your word because my pick for you is nothing like Sally Rooney at all, except for that it is also set in Ireland. It is Other Words for Smoke by Sarah Maria Griffin, which is a like queer sort of YA gothic fantasy contemporary situation. There's a lot going on here. It's set in a very small village in the foot of the Dublin mountains. There is a, like, house that's maybe eating people and killing people, possibly, question mark. There are uh, two teenagers who are, you know, keeping a secret about what happened when a tragedy struck and two people died in a fire in the house. There's, like creatures in the walls. There's, I mean, it's just like, it's hard to like fit in a little summary package because it is such an atmospheric, strange, you know, creepy house story. 
But it tackles a lot of things that are, you know, historically relevant to Ireland, like the Magdalene Laundries situation, which I didn't know anything about before seeing it referenced in here, gets explored. And then also contemporary issues and like, you know, complicated teenage feelings and then various perspectives on what does it mean to be queer in a Catholic country. Like all of these things are happening. So it it is a deeply Ireland book on top of being like a gothic YA thing. So uh, <laughs> I'm like doing so much hand waving over here, y'all. I don't know if you can like hear the whoosh as my hand passes by my microphone, but those are my words about Other Words for Smoke by Sarah Maria Griffin. I picked Exciting Times by Nisa Dolan. And this, I picked this book because Dolan is a queer and autistic Irish writer who is close professionally to Sally Rooney. Like they've published in anthologies together. She's often comped to Sally Rooney. And so I think, you know, Literally, she is compared to Sally Rooney. So I think that this will work for what you're going for, which is a comparison to Sally Rooney. Um, It doesn't actually take place in Ireland. It does a bit. There's like some flashback stuff, but it mostly is in Hong Kong. And the main character, Ava, is in her early 20s. She's moved to Hong Kong. She's teaching English to rich children or like, you know, children from rich families. And she lives in a really tiny apartment. And then she meets another expat named Julian, who is a banker. He's British. And they become friends. She ends up moving into his apartment. And then she ends up getting involved in a sexual relationship with him. Not a romantic relationship because they actually hate each other like quite a bit, but also kind of love each other. And it's mostly about class. And this is where I feel like the Irishness of the book is most potent. Uh, It's not just that Ava, like the dialect, her dialect is typed out. So like you're going to hear her accent in the book as you're reading. But her struggle here is like she's living off this man's money. Like he buys her clothes. He pays for her bills. She lives in his apartment for free and she's sleeping with him. And like it's never stated that she's sleeping with him in order to get those things. But it's not not stated either. Like it's just kind of there. It's there. And she hates it because he's this. She's a feminist and she's also like a Marxist. So this whole thing that she's doing is very counter to what she thinks is right. But also... He's funny and like she has a good time with him and she can't afford her own place in Hong Kong. So like what else is she supposed to do? It's just fascinating and very human. Um, and then he goes off to London for work for a couple of months, leaves her in the apartment and she meets a girl named Edith who is a lawyer. Um, she was born in Hong Kong. She's very ambitious and like cultured and they hit it off. They go to the theater together and Ava develops this really, really strong crush on Edith, eventually falls in love with her and has been lying to her the whole time saying that Julian is just her roommate, but he's coming back. And so then she's going to have to deal with that because like she's in now a public relationship with Edith, but Julian is coming home and is going to like probably expect things to be the way that they were. And also she's been lying to her girlfriend this whole time about like who this man is and how she affords this apartment. So it's very complicated and messy and it it's not YA at all, but you know, she's like 22. So it feels very like, mm. you are so young. <laughs> like you are so <laughs> young and you were doing such young people things. And I like just want to, do you want to live in my house for a while? <laughs> you know? yeah. And I will feed you food and you won't have to do any of that. But the, the class stuff there, I think is where the book is strongest and definitely the most interesting and the most Irish, to be honest. So that's Exciting Times by Nursie Dolan. All right. Last question is from Kristen who says, I'm good about reading diversely in my nonfiction book life, but I feel like I'm lacking it in my fiction reading. So any authors who are part of marginalized communities that you think I would enjoy are welcome. My fiction wheelhouse is thrillers and mysteries, strong lead characters ahead of their time, romance subplots, historical romance, real world fantasy, magical realism, and myth retellings from lesser characters. Don't feel it has to be in my wheelhouse. I'm always open to any good book, ebooks or audiobooks preferred because money and slow mail. 
Um, and then she sent us a picture of her cat as payment, which I appreciate. I'm not, I didn't pick your question because of that, but I did not pick it either because of that. Always send me <laughs> pics of your pets. Okay, Jen, what you got? Yeah, I I saw this question in the agenda and I was like, oh, I have to go find it because I mostly don't go into that inbox, but I definitely went into the inbox to find <laughs> the picture of your cat. Thank you, Kristen. All right, let's see. I picked The Night Watchman by Louise Erdrich, who, I mean, this book just won the Pulitzer. Like, mm-hmm. it's freaking amazing. It's the best thing I think that Erdrich has ever written, which is saying something because mm-hmm. her career is incredible and so many of her books are just works of art but this book y'all I read this book and I was just sort of flabbergasted by how good it is and so you know you give me an opening and I'm gonna take it this is what I'm I'm telling you to read content warnings include sex trafficking domestic violence addiction and also the oppression that the native communities in America have experienced It takes place in North Dakota in a rural area that is near the Turtle Mountain Reservation is is the reservation that it takes place on. And the one of the main characters, it's alternating POVs. One of the main characters, Thomas, is an older gentleman. He is a council member for the Chippewa Council. And it is 1953, and there is this quote-unquote emancipation bill happening in Congress where they are literally want to take away the term Native Americans, which then means that those communities lose all of their rights to all of their, like, treaty land, any rights that they still have left, and their identity, they lose. But it's, like, supposed to, like, free them from mm-hmm. <laughs> discrimination, which actually is 100% not what it's doing. So he is, like, uh, he, he's a night watchman at this jewelry plant, hence the title of the book. And he's, like, you know, doing his rounds, also reading this bill, trying to understand, like, what the hell is this thing and how do we fight it? Because he knows immediately that this is going to decimate his community. They rely on government funding for various things because, of course, they do. Like, they have been you know marginalized to the point of near extinction or actual extinction so like and he's also you like mentioned you like you know fabulous elements there's like he's being haunted by a ghost question mark and there's this owl that's like maybe a portent also question mark so that's happening and then we get the perspective of pixie who works at the jewelry plant and She's trying to bring home money to support her family. She is also really, like, worried about her older sister who moved to Minneapolis and, like, they have not heard from her in months. And she's starting to have these dreams that are, like, question mark, are they prophetic? Like, is something going on with Vera? Does she need to go and find out? So she takes the train into Minneapolis to try to find her sister. And, like, all kinds of intense adventures ensue. And... This, oh man, I just, like, how do I talk about how good this book is? It's just so good. It's so good. This is an important, you know, period in history that is not taught, right? Like, we don't learn about this stuff in, you know, United States schools. So that's important. It, It talks about the residential schools, also extremely important. And, you know, what it means to be a Native woman out in the world, like, ugh, in the 50s. Like, wow, this book is so intense. And it's the style of it is, like, so spare and perfect. Ugh, I just, okay, I'm going to stop talking. Anyway, it's amazing. Read it. It's The Night Watchman by Louise Erdrich. Okay, I picked Dial A for Aunties by Jesse Q. Sutanto, which is a mystery with a romantic subplot. So I just picked, like, two of the things that you listed out of your wheelhouse. And this is about a woman named Madeline who is a uh, wedding photographer. 
And she works for her family business. Like her mother and all of her aunts, she has three aunts, all work for this company, this like family company that they have started. Um, You know, like one of them is the baker, one of them is the florist, one of them does the singing because she's like famous. And she's the photographer, metal and photographer. Their family is interesting. They are a Chinese-Indonesian family who live in California now. All of their husbands are gone. And Medellin has this family pressure to, like, be the kid who doesn't leave because, you know, all their husbands left and then all their sons moved away. And Medellin's, like, the last child of the family. Um, And she really doesn't want to abandon them. She also kind of still wants to make her own way. So that's the dynamic that's happening here. She feels a little suffocated by her family, but also she's, like, happy to be involved in the in the business and to be supporting them. Until <laughs> her mother... Like catfishes. I don't even know how, I don't know which way the catfish is swimming in this situation. She pretends to be meddling on a dating app and sets her up on a blind date because she like deeply wants her daughter to get married. Sets her up on a blind date and Medellin feels so bad. And so she goes on the blind date uh, because she's like, fine, whatever. And then she accidentally murders the guy. And it's it's like a comedy of errors. And then she panics, right? She doesn't know what to do. So she like stuffs him in the trunk and drives home to her mom's house and calls all of her aunts and is like, dead body shrug? <laughs> you know, like, help me. And so her aunts kick into, you know, overdrive to help her deal with this thing that she's done and you know they're suspicious of the police and now she's like run away from the crime scene so she just looks guilty so for all of these reasons they like go along with it the twist if you need one on top of all of that is that the next day they're supposed to run a wedding on a resort island off the coast of california for a family of billionaire billionaires with a b chinese indonesians and if they nail this wedding their company is going to be like set for life but also they have to do something with this body the romantic subplot happening here is that Medellin's boyfriend, ex-boyfriend from college, who she like has never gotten over, turns out to be the owner of the resort hotel where she shows up to like do this wedding. And also there's a dead guy stuffed in the freezer. Uh, and so, yeah, that's that's the thing that you're here to watch happen. You know, it's classified as a mystery thriller. I don't know that it's so much of a mystery because you know who did it. It's the main character. She does it, the murder in like the first five pages or so. It's more a mystery of like, how are they going to get out of this? And all of the aunts are so great. The dynamic between the four of them, between the four older women, and they're like family, what's the word? Um, the order in which, birth order? Like, this is the mm. oldest, you know, the, the birth order and how it dictates their interactions with each other are fascinating. It's so great. It's so great. So that's Dial A for Aunties by Jesse Q. Sutanto. And that's our show. Woo-hoo. We did it. <laughs> All right. Thank you to our audio editor, Jen Zink, for removing all of the bird and fan noises when we can't muffle them enough. And also our flubs. Thank you all for listening. We super appreciate that. Uh, if you would like more book recommendations, you can get those. Check out bookriot.com. You can also find our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. We have a whole bunch. If you are so inclined, please do leave us a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people to find the show, and we love to see that feedback come in. Thanks to our sponsors for making the show possible. And in between shows, you can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And I am on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL, Jen with two N's IRL, and on Instagram as I am Jen IRL, and I will spare you all sweatbox pictures i promise (laughs) not to post those i will never post them all right that's our show we will talk to you next time 